Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Caregiving Gen X Style. I'm Steve Mullen. And I'm Jennifer Mullen. You know, as we age, our brains just don't work as well as they used to. Even us Gen Xers have certainly noticed. Absolutely, Jennifer. Yes. But it's harder, really, with people that are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. It can progress beyond the point of simple forgetfulness. So in this episode, we'll be joined by a guest to talk about dealing with dementia when caregiving for our elderly loved ones. But first, Jennifer, how's your mom? Actually, I feel like I'm starting to sound a bit like a broken record. Maybe a little. But Yes, but I feel very fortunate that for the last several episodes that we have recorded, I have been able to say that my mom is really, she's doing great. There really have been have no, no complaints, specific no incidents, and I feel stories. like I need to knock on, wood. knock on the wood. Yep. But I am actually really looking forward to this episode in particular because, I, you know, the one thing I'll say and mom, please, I'm going to preface this by saying I love you because I know you listen to we, these we episodes. We love you, Goggy. I really love you. But, you know, f- for for years, my one brother and I have talked about the fact that we'll talk to mom on the phone. And, you know, there might be like that she's half watching the Today Show and half listening to us. And that's and part of it sometimes. It's not forgetfulness it, sometimes. It's right? distraction. It's sometimes trying to identify what actually might be happening. Are you listening to me? Are you not listening to me in your busy, busy life? Is it that the Today Show is more important and you're remembering more of that or, or you know, current events, which again, she keeps up pretty well with current events. So, but then she can't remember if I've like shared something with her that's happened at work this morning. So, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing a little bit more from our guest today, but I'm pleased that she's doing really well. So, Steve, how about you? How's your mom? Uh, briefly, we need to go back and talk a little bit more about the bird feeder. Oh, the bird feeders come the up. Bird feeders. It's, it's a suction cup bird feeder. I think feeder. it was my, wasn't that my it idea? It was your idea. It was my idea. I gave it to her for Mother's <laughs> Day last year, so 2022. Yep. We've now had two bird feeding seasons. Uh, And around here, you know, the birds fly away. A lot of the birds fly away except for the cardinals and some of the crows and stuff. But they, you know, this time of year, where we are now, the birds are starting to go away. But my mother will not give up on bird feeder season. (laughs) I was just there the other day. And there were still, I put bird feed in there like a week and a half before, and there were still some left. And she said, well, do you want to go out back and we put some bird seed in the bird feeder? And I said, what for? What birds? I mean, there's still uh, fine. Yes, yes, sure, sure. We'll go out. Right, she remember, doesn't want to give up on it. Remember too, it is an activity. It is to an do activity, absolutely. But I've said this that. is the gift that keeps on taking, yes. <laughs> okay. and it's taking from me every all single right, time fine. I go over there. <laughs> All right. As we mentioned in the open, this episode's all about caring for a loved one who has dementia. Now we have a bit of experience with dementia symptoms. My mother, her mental capacity declined rapidly for several months after she had COVID-19 last year, 2022. She was diagnosed with dementia uh, a few months later, but the more I look into it, the more and more I learn, the more people learn, it's fairly sure that she actually had severe COVID brain fog, which was really a lot of the same thing, but uh, her situation gave us a taste of what it's like to take care of someone with dementia. So our guest for this episode is Dr. Mitch Kleonsky, a board-certified neuropsychologist who practices in Massachusetts. 
Dr. Kleonsky has been practicing for 45 years and specializes in assessment of the different types of dementia, which I will say, side note, squirrel, right? There's, I, I've been surprised with the tiny bit that we know, and I know we're going to learn more in this episode of how many different sort of variations there are of that. So Dr. Kleonsky evaluates upwards of a thousand individuals every single year. Which is a lot. That's a lot. He's also a former caregiver for someone with dementia. So this all, it's all coming full circle. So Dr. Kleonsky, welcome to Caregiving Gen X Style. A pleasure to be here. Nice to meet both of you. It's great to meet you. Thanks for being on with us. Can you first off, just tell us about your practice and specifically what you do? Sure. So I'm a neuropsychologist. I used to go to parties. I tell people I'm a psychologist, at which point they would all either tell me their problems, even though I didn't want to hear them, or they'd pull away because they were sure I was reading their minds. <laughs> I found that if I could tell them I was a neuropsychologist, they'd all look at me and say, they'd nod, they'd say, oh, oh that's, that's very nice. interesting. <laughs> so in neuropsychologist, I tell people, we basically test how people think. We measure how they pay attention, how they're aimed in different circumstances, we measure their abilities to learn new information and then remember it so it's short-term memory, again, in several different ways. We also look at intelligence, problem-solving, the ability to plan and execute, the ability to think abstractly, look at the larger picture, how well they communicate, and we look as well at how they're doing emotionally. And then we take all that information, usually in the form of test scores or ratings, and compare those scores with not perfection, but rather other people of the same age and similar backgrounds. So if you started out being better intellectually than the average person of your age, we expect that you should continue when compared with them to be a little bit at the front of the pack. If things involved with thinking have been difficult for you, then you're going to be expected to be at the low normal level, not quite average. But most of the people, 68% of the general population, should be in the average range. So that's our comparison. Okay, interesting. That That's actually really interesting to me. Um, it's sort of like a, it's like a level set. It's about kind of equity across the board and having mm-hmm. this benchmark that you start with. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's like the bathroom scale. You get on the scale and it doesn't lie. It may not give you information you like, but it doesn't lie. Whereas, you know, a lot of people try to make a diagnosis based on phenomena. Oh, she forgot this. I wonder if that's important. You know, she asked me the same question again. Or does you were talking about, huh, wonder what my mom's bandwidth is. Is she really paying attention to too many things at once and therefore not really paying attention to any of them? We sort of take a lot of that out of the equation by bringing them in and giving them objective tests and then seeing how they stack up. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about that a little bit later in this episode. But let's talk about the fact that you have written a book on how to lower your chance of dementia. So tell us about that. I am very intrigued by that. So it's really a we. The primary author, my co-author, my wife, very fabulous Emily Kleonsky, MD, is a physician who practiced internal medicine and then went back and decided to get a second residency. Who would think about that? This time in psychiatry. 
and she specializes in the medical aspects of dementia. So pretty much we work together and, you know, I see you guys work together because you do this podcast, but try to write a book together if you want to do a real stress test on your relationship. <laughs> so it's funny you should mention that. This has been discussed and discussed and discussed in this podcast. This podcast actually started out as us saying we should write a book. <laughs> and and then we realized that's just too much trouble. Let's do a podcast instead. <laughs> yes. So we, yes, uh, a lot of props to you and your wife who, um, by the way, can we just say overachiever? Seriously. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she is. Well, that was after she went to medical school at age 42. She had already had a career in computer science and sales and a bunch of other things when she finally decided that she wanted to go and get a medical degree. And that was uh, the start of a whole different direction. Wow. That's another story. Yeah. That is super I, impressive. I tell that to people when I see them and they're in their 40s and they say, oh, I think I'm at a dead end. I can't do anything. I've used up all my directions. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you have lots of opportunities. You just have to choose them. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. I love that advice. I love that advice. Okay. So, so the book. So you guys collaborated on this book together. Yeah, we decided that we, so we had been working together in parallel practices for a number of years, seeing a number of patients together. We produced a five-minute dementia screening test that could be used in doctor's offices. We had sold it to a big corporation to be used for a number of years. We were looking for some other things and done some research at four published studies and decided that we were getting at a point in our life where we wanted to take all of the information that we had amassed, all of the research that we had read, and the practice experience, and turn it into something bigger than just the next hour of who was going to walk in the door. And so that's when we decided that a book was the right place to do this. And then it was a matter of just finding, we wanted to find a very reputable publisher, and that's why we hooked up with Johns Hopkins Press, because they have very exacting standards. There's a lot of slop in this field of dementia. There's a lot of people who say, eat this, don't do that. They don't really base it on research. We wanted to take this very wide-ranging research because it's not just neurology. It's not just psychiatry or neuropsychology. It's cardiology and endocrinology and sleep medicine and exercise physiology. It's a very, very wide field. And then we wanted to take this, organize it into a model translated into language that the regular person would understand and then give them an opportunity to figure out how to make a plan for themselves and put it into action. So a very large idea, but it took us three years to do it. And what's the name of the book? Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. So as we mentioned earlier, you, Mitch, were previously a caregiver for someone with dementia. How Talk a little bit about how that experience shaped your life. You know, I'd already been practicing neuropsychology and dealing with dementia for about 25 years. And then my very competent, very caring, wonderful mother began to show signs of dementia. And I think like most people, my brother is the other sibling I have. And I initially just sort of wrote it off to these little things. You know, why is she forgetting this? Why does she have this strange idea? So there were little things, the little quirks, because we had this particular image of who she was. And it was very hard to put pieces together at the time. 
In retrospect, we could see the beginnings under stress when she was tired, and she developed a form of dementia that is akin to Alzheimer's disease, but is more likely a vascular dementia. Back in those days, it was called Binswager's syndrome. Now we call it vascular dementia. So, as I say in the intro of the book, uh, I dedicate this to my mother, who taught me a lot about life and whose life taught me about dementia. Oh, I love that. I didn't really understand it from the caregiver's end until I became a caregiver and worked through a lot of the issues of how I deal with the reversal of roles. How do I come become my mother's father, essentially? How do we make these decisions that are respectful of her, but at the same time, we protect her from making the bad decisions for herself? How do we fit this into a sandwich generation where I've got three kids that I'm raising in a practice that I'm dealing with and a lot of responsibilities? So there's a lot of things that I learned, as well as some tips about how to deal with making the visits with her more enjoyable, because she, she was in assisted living. We all realized, her included, that her living with either my brother or I, one of us was going to kill each other. So it was very clear that she needed to be in a place where she could have the support she needed, and we could be her children still. We could visit. We could take her out, get her involved in the kids' you know, plays and sporting events and all that good stuff without having to also be up with her in the middle of the night if she was reversing days and nights or figuring out you know, what she could eat, what she couldn't eat. So there's a lot of things I learned about that that turned out, and part of, that's part of the impetus for the book, is I've got to make something more meaningful about her disease. I've got to help other people to see what this is like so that they can then use this information. Yeah, and I, I just have to say just for a moment, and this is a little tiny bit of a squirrel, but we have talked about this in a previous episode. You know, the, the automatic, I think, instinct is to bring your loved one into your home to care for them because, of, right, they, they raised you, they cared for you, you know, you, you want to give back and do that for them, but also very much having that recognition that there are a whole lot of reasons that might not be the best choice for anyone, for, for anyone, you know, not for you as the caregiver, because it's probably going to drive you crazy. And, you know, really not for them either, because probably they need to be in a place where there are medical professionals who can handle a lot of the situations that, you know, they, they might find themselves in. So that, that's actually really interesting to, to me to hear you say that. So I appreciate you sharing that. You're welcome. It's, it's very much an individual decision. I see people who run the gamut mm-hmm. of what they do in terms of you know, bringing someone in to care for mom or dad in their home versus bringing them into their own home versus having them go to an assisted living. I mean, there's just, it's partly cultural and it's partly financial. Sure. And it's partly just what the relationship is like. In some families, there's this whole history of inter- intergenerational caregiving. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's very valuable. And in some ways, I applaud those people because caregiving is one of the most difficult things that you have the least experience and training ever doing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, and you by the way, it. 
I feel like we have a whole other uh, side note, squirrel, again, whole other uh, episode that could talk about sort of the differences in the, the cultural differences in the caregiving, the intergenerational caregiving. Those of us, I'm looking, Steve, <laughs> across the microphone, like it is, it is not that there's a piece of us that would, you know, probably love in some ways to bring our moms here to live with us. But there was like a whole lot of things to consider, not not just even the medical care, but even, you know, I'm looking around our home. We live in a beautiful home, but like we'd have to do some serious. So be, we'd be tearing walls out. Right. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. Well, and beyond in, that, yeah. I mean, I don't know that either of our mothers would want that, they frankly, any more than deep down. Then we we do. really do. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. all right, okay, let's I know we move got a on a little bit. Track. We got a little off track yeah, there. Yeah. So, you know, in this episode, we want to talk about what a caregiver can do after dementia symptoms have already started. So let's get a basic idea of what we're dealing with here. Mitch, Tell us about the different type, the different basic types of dementia and how quickly do they tend to progress? So, good question. Very important question. People oftentimes will confuse dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And they, Alzheimer's is a type of dementia in the same way that Ford is a type of automobile. But just like Fords, there's a Chevys, there's Toyotas, there's... Hondas, there's all kinds of different types of cars. There's also a variety of different types of dementia. And having one does not necessarily exclude having another. So, for example, we used to talk about hardening of the arteries, what we now call vascular dementia. Turns out that it's probably at about the same frequency as Alzheimer's disease. And the largest group of people have features of both conditions. So there's an overlap. And the vascular, the circulatory problems actually can increase the Alzheimer's pathology. The actual root of the amyloid plaques, for example, in their brain. You also have dementias arising from Parkinson's disease. At their most extreme form, we call it Lewy body dementia. These days, Bruce Willis has become the face of of a very different kind of dementia called frontotemporal dementia, mm. where it's mostly a change in language and or personality as opposed to memory. And these tend to be much younger onset. So people oftentimes in their 50s as opposed to more often in their 70s come down with frontotemporal dementia. We know from repeated head injuries or even at times a single head injury, you can have a traumatically induced brain syndrome that develops into dementia as you get older. There's a variety of other variants. You could get dementia from drinking too much alcohol, what they used to call Wernicke-Karsakoff syndrome, where people would have such rapid forgetting. I remember one patient who I was in a room with them, testing them. I walked out of the room, picked something up on the table, walked back in, and the guy looked at me and said, who are you? I had just spent a half an hour with him. He knew exactly who I was wow. while I was there. He'd forgotten about me in the 30 seconds I stepped out. Oh, my goodness. So you have a lot of variations. But in, in general, we're talking about degenerative neurological diseases, changes in the structure, uh, the size, and the connectivity of our brains. So all of these things will affect our memory, our problem-solving, our behavior, 
our mood state. I mean, it's, it just it controls everything because it's our brain and our brain is the great command and control center of our body. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. I know that you've, you've met literally with tens of thousands of patients and their families. What is the best piece of advice that you have for someone who is caring for someone else who has dementia? One of the things I like to give them is a book to read uh, that's also published by Johns Hopkins Press. It's called The 36-Hour Day. It's been out for about 40 years. It's now in its seventh edition. It is sort of the best caregiver's manual for dealing with someone with dementia. For example, if somebody who wants to drive and they're not allowed to drive anymore because they don't have the capacity to do that and they're insistent upon it, now you have to figure out how do I deal with that repeated request? Where's my car? What'd you do with it? Why can't I drive? And back and forth. And, you know, people go from arguing, trying to reason with the person. You see that you can't drive because you can't do this and you can't do that. And suddenly they're at loggerheads about this. And so they've got advice in there. I mean, one of the tips that they give you for things like that is what they call temporizing. Temporizing is very interesting. It's sort of like promise them anything, but not today. It's like, well, Dad, you're right. And I think you should be able to drive. Unfortunately, the car has a problem. I've taken it to the garage. They'll say, okay, well, when it'll be back? See, you know, I don't know, but there's a part they have to order. So it could be a little while. Okay, fine. Then the next day you hear the same question. You said it was going to my car. You know, something that part is on back order. <laughs> so essentially you agree with them that this is something that's okay, but it can't happen now. And that can't happen now part is really what calms the waters. That's just one of the little tidbits that I had from being able to read that book. That is absolutely brilliant. I, I love that. I'm going to store that away in case it ever comes up again. And, you know, that that was something that, that came up with my mother during her period. And, and like I said, I think we determined it was probably brain fog, but the, the dementia symptoms were classic. And she was having, I guess, for lack of a better word, hallucinations. And, you know, she was convinced that she had a driver and that people were coming into her apartment and there was water on the floor and just all kinds of weird stuff. How do you, as a caregiver, what is it best to tell them that that didn't happen or is it best to, to let them have that? Usually it's a little different than both of those. Those are the two things that come to mind first. Oh, I'll argue them out of it or I'll just simply go along with it. Instead, you work on, let me help you deal with this. You got the water. Let's see. Maybe we should look for some towels together. Maybe it's not as bad as it looks on the surface. I'll help you clean this up, and then let's go and do something else because we'll solve the problem. And now let's look at this instead. So you sort of, it's a little bit like mental judo. You're really allowing them to use the energy. You're not fighting back against it, but you're not entirely buying. You know, I'll give you an example. I did a talk some years ago and a woman came up to me after the talk and said, I wanted to share this tidbit with you. 
again, it's driving because for men, as we know, our, our keys are attached to our scrotum and uh, <laughs> very difficult to separate the two. And she says, my husband is crazed about driving. He's not allowed to drive. So here's what I do. Every day or so, we go to the senior center. And so I start off by saying, you know, honey, we're a real modern couple. We share things equally. Tell you what, how about I'll drive to the senior center and you can drive home? And he always agrees. And so we go to the center and we do things. It's time to go home. And I look at him and I say, you know, honey, since you drove here, let me drive home. Oh, yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Part of what I'm taking away from all of this, Mitch, though, it's it's really interesting, right? Like you, you spend your entire life being told, don't lie, don't exaggerate the truth, you know, wh- wh- whatever that might be. And this is, I'm sitting here thinking about it as a caregiver. And I've had some experiences, you know, certainly myself. I know my brother has, I cer- you know, I know Steve has with his mom too, but it's a mind shift of what is an acceptable sort of white lie, I right. guess, if you and, will. And I'll say and not that, feeling bad about it. That was an issue I had with my mother with these stories she would come up with. And I mean, basically how I handled it, I said, you know, mom, I think that might have been a dream. Uh, I think you had a dream. But, you know, she told me uh, half a dozen times she had a driver and his name was George. And George would take her out and run errands. She lived in assisted living. There was no driver. My first inclination was to try to anchor her to reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that wasn't the best way to go. I just, I kept going back and forth on it, back and forth on it. I couldn't figure out a better way to do it. No, absolutely. And you know something? There's no manual that you get in advance. And the usual response to this is always to try to insert reality. It's like, hey, let me verbally slap you across the face and wake you up. Because this is the way it is, and I love you, and I want you to be anchored in reality and be this person I could always talk to in the past who would give me sound advice and would know exactly what was going on. And so it takes a lot for us to realize that that person isn't the same person that we're now dealing with. And as to what you were talking about before these sort of white lies, they've actually coined a term in the dementia community for these little white lies they call them fiblets 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 love it yeah fiblet is sort of an acceptable kind you know you you get the uh you say three hail marys if you have a fiblet sort of like okay there it is it's good enough fine go 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 on your way right it's okay it's okay to do that because it spares hard feelings it protects the integrity of the relationship and nothing it's not like you're saying to the person, oh, go out and play in traffic. I mean, there's nothing that's bad that's going to happen from this. It's simply that in the course of doing it, you are helping them to feel better and you're respecting them. So I don't really, I know people have a hard time making that shift, but after they do it, it's meant in the best way and doesn't result in, I mean, this person's not going to go and say, oh, you know what? She said this was okay. And therefore they don't remember that if they have that significant level of dementia. Well, I, I and I love that too. Like, I love that for, for the person. I love that concept also selfishly for the caregiver because it allows you to be okay with doing that. 
not feeling bad about doing it. And also it relieves, quite frankly, some of your frustration of Mm -hmm. pushing back and saying, no, 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 that's not it. That's not right. That's not where we are. That's not what we're doing. That isn't what happened. So selfishly, if you're dealing with someone with dementia and you have this opportunity to kind of like step back and almost like give yourself a pass, I'm all for that. You have an obligation at the beginning to get them evaluated, mm-hmm. to really rule out things that could be causing this change that are treatable or fixable. So, you know, ignoring the symptoms at the beginning isn't helpful because who knows, this person that you care about might have a chemical abnormality. Their thyroid may be off. They may be having a vitamin deficiency. They may be suffering from a treatable form of sleep disorder breathing called sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. They may have an infection, especially infections due to urinary tract or respiratory infections. Oh, yep. we've, we believe we me, we have a lot of experience yep. with that. <laughs> so you treat those things and you make sure that you've covered all the bases. You take them to a competent physician. You get the MRI of the brain. You get the blood work. And then you find out, nope, based on everything we know, we've done a good kind of evaluation, a thorough evaluation. Your loved one has dementia. And now the question is, what can we do to prevent or slow down the deterioration. Now, getting back to a question you guys asked a little earlier, which is, which progresses quicker and everything? And the answer is, these days, we do have existing medications that have been out since the late 1990s. And I tell people that if you do this right, most of the folks I see are much the same five years later from when they first walked in the door. And that's because of fixing, Emily has a model. She says, it's like building a house. First thing you have to do is get the physical foundation intact. Because no matter what you do above that, if the foundation's not good, the house is coming crashing down. So you do, and you, we, we list these in the book. We talk about a variety of different medical things that can cause cognitive decline. You make sure that they're getting their medication so that their blood pressure and their sh- blood sugars are well controlled. Make sure they're actually taking their medications. So many people living in the community with memory loss are, they've, they've got high blood pressure, so the doctor gives them all blood pressure medicine. They go back in a month later, their blood pressure is still high. The doctor ups the dose. They go in a month later, they still have high blood pressure. The doctor adds a second pill, sometimes a third pill. Then the daughter comes visiting from out of state realizes that mom is not taking her medications, gives her all the medications. Mom falls down because now her blood pressure is based, goes into mm. the basement because now she's actually taking the pills. She would have been fine with one pill, but she wasn't taking them. So you get all that stuff worked out, some system in place. And then you start adding on the medications we have to slow things down. And you keep them physically active. You keep them cognitively stimulated. And you keep them safe. So there's a whole bunch of things you can do if you're proactive. Let me ask you this, and this kind of relates, I think, to the fiblets a little tiny bit, which that is going to be my new favorite word. Oh, absolutely. We're going to use that. I love that. We're going to use that. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're caring with someone who has dementia, so let's just assume the diagnosis has happened, right? You know they have dementia. Are there things that you should be doing? And if so, what are they 
to keep them oriented to things like time, date, place? Like how important is that? And if you say that it's important, how should you do it? Like most things, it depends. It depends on how much independent behavior is required. If somebody's in a situation where they've got full day caregiving, they're in a, let's, let's say they're in a traditional assisted living. By the way, 40% of the people in traditional assisted living have dementia. Most people don't, don't realize that, but it's very, oh, very common. Oh, I absolutely believe that. I, I'm in an assist, my mother's assisted living several times a week, and I look around and, oh, absolutely, I believe. You that. just said something about that not that long ago, actually. I yeah, really did, so, yeah. yeah. I think we were talking about that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely. So those levels of dementia, oftentimes, if there's good active staff involvement, where they don't just let the person stay in their room, but they go up there and say, come on. Harriet, it's time for such and such. Let's go and get you involved in that group. Everyone's looking forward to your being there. And they do a lot of outreach, and they're going to prompt you at the right time. It doesn't really matter what day it is. It doesn't really matter what the date is. It's not going to make a difference in how that person feels and just takes an extra burden on them. On the other hand, if they're living by themselves and you're supposed to pick them up for a doctor's appointment, and they think it is a different day or the wrong time of day, there's going to be a lot of frustration. So you're going to have to build in some other opportunities or techniques for keeping them at least oriented enough or taking it into account. Like when my mother was still living in the community, we knew that if we made a date to go out for dinner, that someone needed to be there 45 minutes in advance because she would still be dressed in pajamas and not really ready to go because someone needed to cue that because she didn't have the initiation at that point. So we realized that well, we were just getting angry at her for never being ready. We needed to just make a plan to get her ready so that we could have a nice evening or a nice afternoon. So it's, uh, you know, but if the more independent you need to be, the more important orientation is. Absolutely. So, you know, kind of playing into, I guess, you know, basic dementia and, and as it progresses, you know, eventually there's going to be a day when your loved one doesn't know who you are. And I experienced this with my mother a couple of different times. It wasn't that she didn't know who I was. She knew that she knew me. There was one time she couldn't come up with my name. There was one time she introduced me as her boyfriend, Charles. And I said, well, Mom, couple- Charles, she said, sorry, Charlie. Well, and a couple of times she thought you were your father. Oh, uh, yeah. She actually burst into tears once. I said, she said, uh, well, what are we going to do? I, I said, well, mom, you live in assisted living. She said, no, I don't. I live in our house. I said, mom, we sold that house. We sold the house. What's going to happen to the house? And and she started getting really upset. And then I finally figured out she thought she was talking to my father. But the larger point, I mean, this is a, a it's not an uncommon thing with dementia, What's the best thing as a caregiver to deal with that? It's obviously heartbreaking. It is. It is. And having other people that you can share it with, I think is probably the best insulation. Having an expectation that it's not because you're not important. It's because that person has sort of lost that generational sense of you know, where you are. And you probably look like your dad. And that you look like he did when he was young, when she really remembered him. And so it's sort of a, you can sort of reframe it and say, you know, 
I'm glad that she recognizes me and I'm at this point just not a nice young man. I'm actually someone that she feels she loves. So, but, but having someone you can talk to on your end, a spouse, a sibling, and share these and laugh a little bit about it because it does help to take the stress off. Now, caregiver burnout is such an issue and it could happen either if you're having that person live with you, particularly that, or even if you're visiting them, taking them out for meals, doing things. By the way, one of the things I love to do in terms of doing like activities is I always hated to go over and sit in assisted living. I never thought there was enough going on. I, I could invented what's called errand therapy. Because <laughs> I was really busy. I had a dry cleaner and grocery shopping and this and that and the other thing. And I realized that my mother was always doing things when I was young. We did things together. We went uh, delivering things together or cooking together or baking together. So I wanted to do things with her together. And so I would throw her in the car. We would listen to the radio. I'd sing old songs. She was the only person who could stand my singing, but that was great. And we'd get coffee and we'd drop off the dry cleaning. We'd do all these things. And we'd come back and she had a smile on her face. I'd accomplished everything. And so that's one of the things that I always tell caregivers is don't just go there with the purpose of visiting because you're going to run out of things to say most often. There's only so much reminiscing you can do. And so much, here's the new stuff, here's what the kids are doing, and here's what our neighbors said. They're going to not really be engaged in it. But if you go someplace with them, then you can start saying, oh, wow, I didn't know they are going to put that in over there. Look, there's a new restaurant coming in. There's a lot of stuff that'll just keep you engaged. I actually, so I love that you just shared that, Mitch, because Steve and I have actually just had this conversation recently. So his mom is in assisted living. My mom lives independently. Just... I mean, she lives independently. My brother and I are doing everything we can to make sure that, you know, she can do that for as long as possible. But she's she's not super mobile. She really is not driving anymore. Not because we've taken her keys away, but she actually has had a recognition. She's not comfortable driving anymore, et cetera, et cetera. So I usually try once a week to take her out just to take a drive, right? Just to see the sights. We don't often have necessarily a specific destination. Sometimes it's just a, for example, it's fall right now. Look at the pretty leaves changing, whatever. And I just said to Steve, who goes to visit his mom three days a week in assisted living, and it is a little bit of the, you know, what do you talk about three days a week? I actually, and and her mobility is, you know, she, you know, she's she's, in a wheelchair. She's in a wheelchair. Right. So I just said to Steve, like, maybe consider once well, a month it, taking your mom out for a drive just for something to talk about. It's funny you should bring that up because I brought it up to her just yesterday. Oh, and, I have not heard. Uh, oh, live. Yes, we live. did. We, I've we, not heard this yet. <laughs> this is new information for everyone involved. Uh, I did bring that up to her. I said, well, what, what would you think about maybe once a month or twice a month? We get you in the car and we just go drive someplace. She said, what? We're just going to go drive around town. There's nothing to look at. I said, Mom, I'm just thinking getting you out of the assisted living and into a different environment. She said, you know what? Getting in and out of the car is just too much trouble. She said, it's too hard. It's too exhausting. She does love to go outside, which is funny because when I was younger, I really never thought of her as an outside person. Mm -hmm. So that's our activity is getting her out of the building and out into the sunshine you know, of course, this time of year, it's going to get 
colder. But she said, well, what would you, she said, what about instead of that, we just go walk around the parking lot and around the property and go see things. You know? and, and that's legit. Uh, on the other hand, I tell you, a lot of times people only enjoy it once they've done it. Yep. I, I'm a believer of the let's do this. And if it's horrible, I'll bring you back early. But the last couple of years, my mother could not walk. So I got, we had a travel chair. I would throw her in the travel chair. And by that point, she was sort of thin enough that I could lift her into the car. I'd put her up in the van, the front seat. I'd say, I got things I got to do. You need to help me. Come on along. And we'd make an adventure of it. Now, everyone's personality is different. But I thought that my asking for her help to go run these errands with me actually gave her a sense of purpose that she didn't have sitting inside the assisted living. So it's different for everyone. Agreed. I, you know, I agree. Definitely. So we'll have to, you know, stay tuned for a future episode. Yeah, we're going to see, see if maybe with this it. one. I'll stick with it. It is hard. It is hard for her to get in and out of a vehicle. And we know that. And she's, you know, I can't pick her up. So one final question, I think for you, Mitch is um, what do you, and, and we, I think briefly touched on this earlier, but what do you do about the simple sort of forgetfulness that doesn't rise to the level of dementia? How concerned should we be as caregivers? Like at, at, at what point do you really start to get that heightened level of, hmm, maybe there's something a little more going on than just I'm listening to the Today Show and I'm talking to you and I'm, you know, making my breakfast all at the same time. Great question, and it's a very gray area. I believe that at every annual doctor's visit, that the doctor should be giving a brief cognitive test to try to identify early on when someone's having greater than normal, quote, or usual kind of memory loss, because then you want to do a more extensive workup, including more comprehensive cognitive testing, as well as maybe some imaging, some blood tests, a variety of things. There's no, there's no fi- a clear line, and it, it changes from day to day, and it can change based on physical features. For example, if you've got sleep apnea, whether or not you got oxygen levels that were adequate the night before can make you really whifty or pretty good depending on what your night was like. If you've got a background physical problem, a headache of UTI, any of those kinds of things, you're going to have much greater difficulty. If you're distracted because you're trying to do three things at once, you don't have the same bandwidth that you had so you could do three things. So that mother who could pay attention to the Today Show while she was making you breakfast, while she was also planning what she was going to shop for, now can't do three things at once, even though she thinks she can, and she needs to shut one of those down. Maybe she can't, you know, if she was driving, I'd say, turn off the radio. I don't want you distracted by the radio while you're driving and talking to me. It's too much happening here. Let's let's limit the uh, the channels. I suggest if you're concerned about it, it's better to do the workup and have it come out normal than to fail to do the work out of wish you, the work up and wish you had. Just curiously though, I said I know I said one more question that I swear this is the last question. <laughs> so so it, it alternates between my brother and I taking my mom to doctor's appointments and 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 honestly it's it my brother tends to take the lion's share of that. But 
he and I on the side have been having the conversation about should should we should we be asking about this? How much do we need to be concerned? So if you are sitting in the doctor's office with your loved one, how do you have that conversation comfortably? Yeah, it's like when people come in to see me and I ask them, so why are you here? They say, well, my daughter made me. Yeah. And I always say, great, because here's where we may get the chance to prove your daughter wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And reassure everybody that you're doing great. But in the off chance that she, for the first time in her life, is right and you have a problem, <laughs> better we should catch it now because there's a whole lot of stuff we can do that can make it better or at least stop it from getting worse. So I'm real glad you came in when you did. That okay. seems to do the trick in most cases. Okay, I that's love good. That. That's, I love that. That's good. So, Dr. Mitch Kleonsky, we really appreciate you being with us today. Remind everyone where they can find your book. So, our book is on, you get it in paperback, on Kindle, you can download it on Apple iPad. It's also on an Audible book, so you can listen to it if you don't like to do that much reading. But people typically get it on one of the big online stores like Amazon, or you can get it through Barnes & Noble or Johns Hopkins Press, or any of a number of different bookstores, or the library. We're in about 150 libraries. So Great. if you want to borrow it, please call your local library, see if they have it. And remind us of the name of the book again. Dementia Prevention, colon, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. All right. And we will find a link to uh, where you can buy that. We'll put it in the show notes. Mitch, we really, really appreciate you being with us today. This is a lot of great information. I've had a great time. And one more thing, we have a, a website called braindoc.com where there's a lot of additional information, including our dementia checklist. So uh, braindoc.com, it's easy to remember and there's lots of good stuff there. All right, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. It, you know, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, there's a few ways to do it. You can email us, caregivinggenxstyle at gmail.com. You can send us a text or leave us a voicemail at this following number, 804-723-1221. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Uh, we love to hear your questions. We'd love to hear just how is your mom or dad doing? You can also find us on Twitter. The handle is at Gen X Caregiving. And we're also on Facebook. Just search for the name of the podcast. And as always, you will find it. We hope to hear from you soon. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Thanks for listening. Good night, everyone.